0: Well, it is really good to see everybody. Welcome back from spring break. I hope it was restful. Um, I hope it was enjoyable. Usually, if there's children involved, you get one of the two. So, hopefully, it was some nice combination thereof. Um, So, it's good. It's good to be in Houston right now, isn't it? It's good. We are witnessing one of the most transcendent things in all of basketball history, the ascendance and the brilliance of James Harden. Now, when Harden arrived with the Rockets, he was a young playmaker with a pretty good shot. Since then, he has now helped lead the charge uh, in how basketball is played. So he's renewed isolation basketball, one versus the world. Um, He's renewed it in a beautiful way. He's made the art of getting fouled and getting close to, or getting to the free throw line. Is that better? We're good. Okay. Um, He's made the art of getting to the free throw line both maddening and wonderful. And he has continued to stretch the mark for three-point shots, uh, making that a part of his arsenal that is obliterating opponents. Uh, This point in the season, he leads the league. In three-point shots attempted. So that is at 867. He, has th- he leads the lead in three-point shots made, 308. He leads the league in total points, 2,348. And then a whole slew of things that they're a bunch of acronyms and nobody cares about them, so I won't list them. But he's really been amazing and you know what I feel most of Houston, maybe even half of you are feeling right now about James Harden's amazing season? Yeah. Eh. Yeah. I mean, here's the reality of it. Two years ago, he had an MVP-level season, and he lost out to a stat-chasing ball hog. Last year, that's right, shots fired. Last year, he had a better season, and they awarded him the MVP. This year, he's even having a better season than he did last year. And everybody kind of is saying, eh? what is it? What is it about us that is looking at his amazing season and being so indifferent to it? I think it's familiarity. I think familiarity has bred indifference to this incredible season and everyone is collectively shrugging their shoulders. Now, Debbie read so excellently our passage today out of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. If you have been a Christian for at least 25 minutes, you have probably heard this passage preached a few times. And I think many people come to this passage And after hearing it, kind of go, eh. Because familiarity has bred indifference. We're so familiar with this that we are indifferent to how amazing it is. I want us, over the next three weeks, we are going to be going through this pivotal piece of Scripture. And we're going to be taking it little chunks at a time. Because the value of this is something so wonderful and so deep that it can change the course of all of our lives. And it is not... It shouldn't be treated with a simple shoulder shrug. Or an eh, because we're familiar with it. So we're going to go in it. And so what I'm asking for you all to do today and over the next three weeks is be willing to take a look at this passage in a new light. Be willing to put aside everything you know or think you know about it and come to it anew. We're all going to walk through this together, and we're going to see what God has for us and what he is calling us to, calling us all to. Would you all join me in prayer? Lord, thank you so much for these moments that we have to get into your word I ask that you do the work far beyond anything that we as preachers can do. That you move in hearts, that you open them, you show everyone here your love, and then what you have done for us through that love. Lord, thank you so much. You are good. We love you. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so if you would, open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Matthew 28. We'll be here, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, for the rest of this morning. Uh, we, I'm going to borrow an idea I read uh, from Jonathan Dodson in his book, uh, The Unbelievable Gospel. And we're going to take three different angles as we approach this passage. First, we're going to take a look at it historically. We're going to take an, an historical angle at this passage. Then we're going to take a cosmic one. We're going to look at it in terms of the cosmos. And then afterwards, we're going to take a deeper look and we're going to make it personal. We're going to look inside. So today we're going to hit this passage from the historic, from the cosmic, and from the personal. And that's what we're going to do as we approach this passage. So if we are going to an historical view Where should we start? Well, with the story of God at creation, okay? Russell has now preached two weeks in a row mentioning this creation story and all that God has done. What do we see in the creation story? There is an omnipotent God that is all-powerful, an omnipotent God. He creates all things. He creates man in his image and in his likeness, And in that image and likeness, he says, now go, multiply, continue to procreate, have children, take my image everywhere, and then not just have babies and go places, but go and be like me and do the things that I do. Go and be like me and go do the things like I do. This is what I want for you. So God sends them out. It didn't last very long. Next we see Chaos, chaos enters the fall of humanity because they said, God, we want to take your place. God, we think we are God. We want to be equal to you. It was a rebellion. That rebellion broke that relationship with God. It broke their relationship to each other. It broke their relationship to the earth. It broke their relationship even to themselves, how they thought, how they processed things. Everywhere they turned was brokenness. That's all that was left. But God didn't leave them there. He established the old covenant and he said, I am going to love you. I am going to pursue you. I am not just casting you out and saying, you're on your own now. He loved them. He pursued them and he welcomed them in through covenant loyalty. He made covenants. These, uh, These uh, agreements of loyalty between him and Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Israel at large, God continued to pursue these people and say, there is a way for you to be made righteous. Unfortunately, God was faithful and Israel was not. God was faithful. Israel was not. God was loyal. Israel was really not. And so God continued to work through history, chasing them, pursuing them, loving them, and finally sending his son to come down. The extension of his love present on earth. Jesus was 100% God, 100% man. He told us how to live, how we could be made right with God. Jesus comes with those open arms, showing his love for us, and then spreads them out. And he dies on a cross. He dies on the cross. He takes our sin. He doesn't stay dead. Three days later, he raises from the dead. He beats sin. He beats death. And then three days, well, not three days, shortly after his three days in the ground, at some point in the very near future, he tells his disciples, at least 11 of them from this passage, it's probably more, go and meet me on this mountain, go and meet me on this top of a a hill in Galilee. And so they all gather there and Jesus comes to them and when they see him, after all that they have seen him do, what do they do? Verse 17 says, a majority of them fall in worship. They fall in worship. It does say, that some were hesitant. Now, it is translated, doubted, but an alternate reading of this is some hesitated. They were, they were really confused and shocked and amazed by this man that they knew was a man, but now is very much a man and very clearly God, raised from the dead, and he is speaking with them. And they worship because they see that God is to be glorified, God has come, and he has saved them. He has saved them. Okay, so this is the very quick 30,000-foot view of the historical angle. Let's set this aside. We're going to come over to this cosmic one. In the midst of their worship, Jesus says these words to them. All authority on heaven and on earth Has been given to me. In his ministry on earth, while Jesus walked the earth, showing others how to live and to be made right with God, he purposefully did miracles on the regular. Okay, so what do we see him do? He healed people's diseases, showing everybody, I have power over sickness and in health. I did a wedding last night that was just supposed to be sickness and health, not in sickness and in health. Sorry. It's just on autopilot. All right. Jesus calmed a storm on a raging sea. He showed everybody, if you wanted to know, I also have power over the weather. He cast demons out, showing everyone that he has power over all the spiritual realm. And then, if that wasn't enough, he raised a few people from the dead, including himself, showing that he had power over life and death. He spent his entire life declaring the scope of his power by his miracles, and now, through his resurrection, he declares it with his words clearly. There is nothing that has authority over him. There is nothing that has authority over him. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. God the Father has given God the Son all authority. What other power is there outside of the power in heaven and on earth? What is there left to be given? When in the presence of God, come down to earth fully man, and ultimate authority over all that ever can be, what other response would we expect from the disciples who are sitting in front of the God who holds all power of the cosmos? They worship because the power of all powers is in front of them. So because of this, because of all of this, whatever Jesus says next is resting on the totality of all of that power. And whatever comes next has an incomparable force. Jesus starts out by, he doesn't just start off by saying, this is what I want you to do. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, all all. Okay, we've hit the historic angle. We touched on the cosmic angle, and now what does the personal angle have to do with this text? Well, let's combine these a little bit. Go, therefore, Jesus continues. Go, therefore, and make disciples. His words to his disciples are built on the story of God, this historical angle. His words are built on his power, the cosmic angle. And because of all this, that's why you have the word therefore, therefore, make disciples. Remember, I brought up how our familiarity with this passage, how it creates in us an indifference. Well, I believe that it's kind of rooted around this phrase, go therefore and make disciples. Why might we be indifferent? Perhaps because it's when we've heard this word disciple, we've attached to it all that we think we've learned about it. Because when we see the disciples sit under Jesus, they call him teacher. And so we see, okay, disciples, teacher, teacher, learners. Okay, disciples are learners. And we limit the definition of disciple just to be Somebody that learns. Just to be somebody that learns. So then we read this passage and we say, Go therefore and make a bunch of learners. That's all we are. Jesus, I think, instead is using a more full sense. Something that comes out here is a disciple mimics. A disciple mimics. In John chapter 13, verse 15, Jesus is telling a story. To his followers, and, and rather he has done an, uh, shown them an example by washing their feet here. And he says, For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Now this statement would not have thrown the disciples. They, they haven't been walking with Jesus, and now Jesus says, Now I want you to go and do what I am doing. And their minds are not blown. In fact, that is completely uh, part and parcel to being a disciple in that era. A rabbi, a teacher, he would gather a bunch of disciples and he would say, you are worthy to be my disciple if I think you can take on my teachings and you can live like I live. So that is why all of these young Jewish boys who would go to the synagogue, they would want to be attached to a rabbi because they they would essentially be viewed as worthy of taking on whatever that rabbi did, and going and doing it. And so when Jesus says this, this is exactly what the disciples understand this to be. A disciple is a mimic. A disciple does what his master does. Secondly, a disciple multiplies. A disciple multiplies. If we look at the story of the sower... In Matthew chapter 13, verse 23, this is, it's, and it quotes, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another, 60, and in another, 30. Faithful, sorry for the, the faithful, following, I'm just going to keep saying as many Fs as I can, uh, A disciple is going to multiply. In this story, Jesus is normalizing this. A faithful disciple is going to be one who multiplies. Sometimes we'll see a yield of 100-fold, sometimes 60, sometimes 30. There is going to be a multiplicative aspect of being a disciple. A disciple must mimic, and a disciple must multiply. A faithful disciple necessarily reproduces faithful disciples that necessarily reproduce faithful disciples that necessarily, I think you get the idea. It goes on and on. There is a multiplication that happens. A disciple mimics and a disciple multiplies. Now, let's take this historic angle. Let's take this cosmic angle. We touched a little bit on the personal angle. Let's tie them together. Remember what we covered? at the start of creation in the story of God. This is the creation account summarized. God, with all power, all authority, all ability, he creates us in his image, and then he sends us out to do things like he does. He gives us everything and then calls us to something, specifically, to reproduce and take his image everywhere. It's built into us, Because it's who we are. It's built into us because of who we are. What do we see in Matthew 28? Jesus, with all power and authority and ability, he gives us the new creation, his image. He sends us out to do the things just like he did them. He gives us everything and then calls us to something specifically to reproduce and take his image everywhere It is built into us because it is who we are. Do you see that what we have in creation happens again when Jesus rises from the dead and then sends us out? It is the exact same. He has already laid this path historically. He has shown us through his story, through his word, that he has made us He has loved us and pursued us. And now at this point in the story, he has saved us. But here's the fun part. This next part of the story, Nick, can you put up the arrow going forward? The the next part of the story, it's us going forward in light of what he has done. It is us. This is how all of the historical and the cosmic impacts us personally personally. Because this is now our part. This is our role. How can it get more personal than this? We get to move forward just like God chased and pursued and showed others his love and his commitment. He sends us out to now go and chase after others and bring them into a loving and wonderful relationship. God Almighty. We have a role. We have a part. Jesus is calling us to go, to be, to bless and multiply God's image just like Adam and Eve. And Jesus' call is for all, all of us as his disciples to make disciples because it's who we are. It's not just what we do. This is who we are. Brothers and sisters, friends, I'm not addressing people that you know that you've been thinking about while I've been preaching, and there's been aspects of this, and you thought, man, I think they'd like that. Mm, they need to hear that. And it's not just for people that you want to hear this. I know it might be easy to deflect the point of this passage that all of us are called to make disciples, to mimic and multiply, because I've used words like we and us, and it's fun, and there's a, there's a collective here. Here's the truth of this. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. This call to embody the image of God and go out and make disciples is for you. It's for me. Full stop. It is for us individually because this is who we are. From the beginning of creation to Jesus sending out through this great commission, his disciples to go and make disciples. This is who we are. This is our part of the story of God. Now, I believe familiarity has caused in us an indifference in who we are. So, as Houstonians and good basketball fans, how can we change our approach to James Harden and the Rockets? Well, we need to start getting all the Rocket gear that we can, hats, shirts, socks, it's all, it's all fair game, We reignite our fandom for the next 13 games of the home season, or rather the regular season, and then get ready to support loudly and strongly during the playoffs. Now, that's something small, that's something simple, and in the grand scheme of things, it just doesn't matter. Now, for what matters? If Jesus has come to us, Jesus bearing all of the power in heaven and on earth, and has called us, to take part in God's story in showing the entire world his love, his joy, his peace, and his glory. If God has called us to that, well, how will we re-engage? How can we re-engage and step into it? If you've got your Connect card and you want to take notes on the back, I've got three questions for you. I know at, well, it's like three sets of questions. There are going to be uh, questions that you're going to pray and you're going to think through. And then you're going to walk out and you're really going to want lunch. And, and that question and its impact is going, to, is going to miss. So I want you to sit in these questions for a moment and then come back to them on Monday. Come back to them on Tuesday. Come back to them in the middle of your work week. Ask yourself these questions. Ask God these questions. So let's take one set from the historical angle. What is my place in God's story? If I've made the claim that God has sent us out and we've got this arrow moving forward that we are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and take his image everywhere, what's my place in God's story? Second question, now from the cosmic angle. Does my life reflect my trust and belief in God's power? Like I said, sometimes when we talk about being a disciple, we talk about learning, and we talk about God's power, and we all jump into the uh, good Christian mode, and we're like, yeah, yeah, God has power, yeah. Lots of it, all of it, sure, I'm in. Okay, does your life, does my life reflect that trust and belief in God's power? Do our lives reflect that trust? Okay, last section, set of questions from this personal angle. Who is God sending me to? Nobody Nobody is off the hook here. If you are a follower of Jesus, then he's actually sent you to places. And said, I want you to go and make disciples where I am sending you. If I am a faithful disciple called to mimic and multiply, who is he wanting me to disciple? Now, please hear me. For those of you who are believers, for those of you who are here and do not yet know Jesus, I mean, Jesus' call is for you to come and experience his love and joy. He is inviting you into this space and he wants to show you his joy and his love for the rest of us who feel that we have experienced that joy, that peace, that love of Jesus Christ. Who is he sending us to? Those people in our lives are not projects. If I ask you as I am in a moment to maybe write down a name or two of who you think God is sending you to, These are people that are worthy to be loved, not somebody to go with your set of questions. Yes, I need to talk to you about the historical God, the cosmic God. How has it impacted you personally? No, moving on. That is not how we want to approach people. We want to continue to love, to bless, and to serve, coming alongside others and in that relationship, showing them the sweet Life-altering, life-fulfilling love of Jesus Christ. So, who is God sending you to? Take a moment. We talk about uh, where God uh, has sent us, where we live, where we work, and where we play. Where we live, where we work, where we play. Take a moment. I trust the Spirit's been moving. If he's brought somebody's name, their face to your mind from one of those contexts, and that might be him nudging you, I want you to engage this person with the goodness of God. Write their name down. Start praying for them. And then here's my encouragement to you, the the quasi-accountability angle. Find somebody who is in your loop group, or who is a, a support and an encouragement to, from you, for you from this church, and ask them to pray for you for boldness. Hey, I'm going to go and talk to, insert name, insert name, insert name. Can you pray for me as I pray for them this week? Pray that I have the boldness to go and talk to them. See, God's words to us are life, and that life has given us purpose. If God has called us to this, how are we going to engage? Would you all bow your heads with me? Lord, I thank you that you have called us into this space, and you've called us into your presence. Lord, you are love, you are kind, you are good, you are gracious, and you stand with open arms ready to forgive Lord, for those of us in this room who don't yet know you, in your kindness, draw them to you. Show them that you are the one who heals all that is broken. Lord, let them see that you are the one that they've been looking for. Lord, for those of us who have come to know you, remind us that you are the one that we have been looking for. Let us not look anywhere else. Lord, let us sit in satisfaction of your love and then run forward with purpose to those you have sent us to. You have called all of us, all of us to all people. Lord, let us sit with our hands open, our hearts open, ready for what you've got for us. We love you, Jesus. Thank you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.